As we mentioned, our text this morning is Revelation 17. And after the sermon, let's sing together hymn 35, all five stanzas. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the chapters leading up to our text of this morning, we are introduced to a formidable array of enemies. There are five that have been presented to us. First of all, there is the red dragon, who is the devil himself. Then there are the two beasts. The beast that rises from the sea, who seems to represent political power that is opposed to Christ's church-gathering work. And the second beast, who rises from the earth, is also known as the false prophet. The fourth enemy is the great prostitute, also known as Babylon the Great. Finally, there are the earth dwellers who who bear the the mark of the beast and worship his image. What the last number of chapters of the book of Revelation is doing is showing how Jesus Christ confronts each of these enemies and how he deals with them. Chapters 15 and 16, we see that the bulls of God's wrath are poured out on the earth dwellers because they refuse to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Moreover, they persecute the church. They hurt, they damage, and they kill the saints. Their judgment is just. The last few chapters of the book of Revelation deal with the dragon, who is the devil, and the two beasts will all be punished and go down to the lake of fire. There's our text this morning, chapter 17, which deals with the great prostitute also known as Babylon the Great, and what our Lord Jesus Christ does to her. You may remember that at the end of chapter 16, when the seventh bowl of God's wrath is poured out, then we read this line, God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. In other words, our text today is an expansion of, of the outpouring of the seventh bowl and the punishment that that our Lord Jesus Christ brings on to to the great prostitute. His full fury, the full cup of his wrath is poured out on her. Now understandably, we're going to have a lot of questions about who is the great prostitute and what is she doing riding the beast with the seven heads and the the ten horns. And we'll do our best this morning to answer all these questions. But more important than satisfying the questions and all the details, more important than that is to realize that the central message here is one of comfort and hope. We said we have a formidable enemy. Enemy is all around us. It comes in every shape and form. It's in government, it's in culture, media, secular education, money, false religion. It's all there. And it's all attacking, it's all seducing us. But Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if you look at the enemy, you almost start laughing. So who do you think you are? Attacking Jesus Christ and his church. Don't you know you will not succeed and you're going down? We will see this morning that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we are not afraid because Jesus Christ, he is king and he is on our side. 
We summarize our text in this way. The rise and fall of the great prostitute, also known as Babylon the Great. And we'll see three things. The prostitute rides the beast, the joining of the prostitute and the beast, and the destruction of the prostitute by the beast. The opening of this text, this passage, one of the angels who poured out one of the seven bowls says to John, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. So just as we said, what we have here is the punishment of the great prostitute. We're about to find out more about her and exactly who she is. We read she sits on many waters. A bizarre statement. It has to have some sort of foundation in Scripture, and it does in Revelation or uh, Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah 51 describes the punishment of Old Testament Babylon. And we read there, You who live by many waters and are rich in treasure, your end has come, the time for you to be cut off. So Babylon is described as living by many waters. The Tigris, the Euphrates, a whole canal system. It was the center of the world. It was the intersection of the world. All nations and travelers went through Babylon, and Babylon had tremendous influence as a result. And that's how we are to understand Babylon the Great in our text. What it's saying here is this Babylon the Great has contact with the whole world. Wherever the world intersects, wherever people are, there is Babylon the Great. She sits worldwide among all people. That's confirmed for us in verse 15 of our text. The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So even as Old Testament Babylon sat at the major intersection of the world, so Babylon the great, the great prostitute, she is found wherever there is life, wherever there are people. She stands in the mainstream of life. And she is a great prostitute, very influential. She influences kings, she influences the common people in the street. She is a prostitute, very good prostitute, insofar as she can speak of a good prostitute. She has the power to attract and seduce men. She draws them in. They are intoxicated with her. They lose their brains. They can't think anymore. Whatever she offers, they are seduced and, and they partake of that. Her immoralities... The love of money, the love of alcohol, the, the culture of the world. She completely seduces and draws people in and destroys their lives. Still we wonder, who actually is she? How can we see her in our daily lives today? Well, verse 5 gives her a name. The name is written on her forehead, and we know from the book of Revelation, whenever a name is on the forehead... That is an accurate description of the character of that person. It says something about who you are and where you're going, even in eternity. And it says this is a mystery. That means you, you've got to be sharp. You've got to pay close attention to figure out this name 
written on the prostitute's forehead. Her name is Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. So she's not just a prostitute. She's the mother of all prostitutes. She is the mother of all abominations. And again, we understand that this, this, this concept of the great prostitute is not just pulled out of the clear blue sky. It's got to have a biblical basis, and it does. Again, it comes from the Old Testament. Often, God would address his people as a prostitute, as, a, as an unfaithful wife, when they abandoned him and they went after pagan gods. As a matter of fact, God could even call other nations round about. He called Tyre. He called her, her a prostitute because of her paganism, because of her idolatries. But most often, God called Israel, his own people, a prostitute, a harlot. harlot. Think of the prophecy of Hosea. Because of that, a well-known, beloved exegete, Professor B. Holwerda, says the great prostitute in the book of Revelation is the false church, the apostate church. It is the Jewish church of that day, and later on it would be the Roman Catholic church of the 16th century. Other well-known, beloved exegetes like Reverend William Hendrickson said, no, this is not the false church. What this is, is world economy, world culture, and the media. He says you cannot just restrict that to the church, because in the Old Testament, God called more than Israel a prostitute. He called Tyre a prostitute. And the whole idea of Babylon, Babylon the Great, sitting at the the center of the world, suggests we're talking about more than, than a false religion. We're talking about world economy world culture, what seduces the masses of this world. I tell you, brothers and sisters, I am hard-pressed between the two. Ultimately, I think, and this is also based on other exegetes, well-known biblical commentators, we don't have to make a choice between the two, but we have here a melding, a blending of both exegesis. And we can find our basis for that in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, the letter to the seven churches. What was the enemy for the churches in the time that the book of Revelation was written? It was the false church. It was a church of the Jews called a synagogue of Satan. At that time, the Jews had freedom from persecution, but they pointed out to the Roman Empire, those Christians, they are a sect. You've got to get those people, and you've got to punish them, and they were punished. But you also had trade guilds, and every trade guild, let's say you were a coppersmith, and you belonged to a guild, every guild had its god, its pagan god. You had to worship it and make sacrifices to it, and if you didn't, you could lose your job, your home, be thrown into jail, and even be killed. These two things work together. The false church and the economy, basic work and culture of that day, they were all working together against the church of Jesus Christ. And persecution was horrible, and it was about to become even more intense. So the great prostitute, Babylon the Great, we would see that as the apostate church. We would see that as commerce, business, money, and the culture of our world. 
And we have seen that combined attack time and again throughout history. We think of the 16th century, the time of the Great Reformation. You think of the Spanish king, Philip II, who had power also over modern-day Belgium and the Netherlands. He was actually governed by the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, through Philip II and through society as a whole, oppressed the people of the lowlands who wanted to get back to the scriptures. In fact, if you were even rumored to own a Bible, or if somebody would say, my neighbor had a Bible study last night, then without question that family was arrested and thrown into jail and possibly even executed. Guido de Bret, who wrote the Belgian Confession, was executed, ripped away from his young wife and his children, and he was executed for this sin. He dared to open the Bible and preach it. You have there a, a working together of false church, of the economy, society, and the government to oppress the true church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And even today, brothers and sisters, you're hard-pressed to talk about, let's say, a false church that has any influence in our world. But today, the modern religion, which is absolutely false, is mammon, is money. Money drives our world. Money is our religion. And materialistic things is what people live for. And if you don't yield to that, brothers and sisters, if you don't bow down and yield your ethics, if you refuse to work on a Sunday, if you refuse to make money your God, you can lose your social standing, you can lose your job, and you can be in all kinds of trouble. That is Babylon the Great. That is the great harlot. It is false religion, it is the economy, it's money, it's society as a whole, which is poised to destroy Jesus Christ and, and his church. Now John gets to learn even more about the great prostitute because the angel, that's the Holy Spirit ultimately himself, brings him out to the desert. And we read, There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. So the great prostitute is riding on this enormous, ugly beast. Beast with seven heads, ten horns. We've heard about him before. That's the same beast that we find at the beginning of Revelation 13, who comes out of the sea, who represents raw political power that is opposed to Jesus Christ and his church. She rides the beast. She controls the beast. They are in bed together in a manner of speaking. The beast is covered with blasphemous names because the, the beast wants to pass himself off as being equal to Jesus Christ. I am the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I am your Savior. The prostitute rides him. She controls him and manipulates him for her own goals, her own ends. We also read that as she's sitting on him, she is glittering, glittering with her jewelry and her fine clothing. And then we read, there was a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and with the filth of her adulteries. You know, you can have a beautiful woman and you can dress her up in the finest clothing with the finest jewelry. But if she's a prostitute, she's still a prostitute. And she's still ugly. And this prostitute was ugly with her abominations 
with her seductions, drawing people into sexual immorality, drawing people in for the love of money and for the pleasures of life. But the most horrible thing of all is what we read in verse 6. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. You look at her, beautiful, finest gown, glittering with jewelry, but from the corner of her mouth dripped the blood of the saints and of believers. She was drunk on the blood of the martyrs. And you would say, come on, this is, this is just too graphic and it's just too over the top. Well, brothers and sisters, think of the time of our text. Think of the days of Paul and our Lord Jesus Christ, how the Jewish church began to persecute Christians. How many Christians didn't lose their lives because they followed Jesus rather than follow the scribes and the Pharisees? And then in the time of the, of the Reformation, or think even broader than that, the Spanish Inquisition that began already in the, in the late part of the 15th century went, went right through to the 1800s. How many thousands, tens of thousands of people died because they dared to open their Bible and to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And today in our world, Christians are dying by the tens of thousands because they want to practice a living faith in Jesus Christ. The great harlot, she is drunk on the blood of the saints. Nothing gives her greater pleasure than to attack and to hurt anybody who will not follow her and be seduced by all her pleasures. Now as we think about this vision of the woman in the desert riding the beast, horrifying, we think of another woman in the desert that we heard about back in chapter 12. We read about that woman that she was clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now that's a different woman. That's a really beautiful woman. She shines like the sun. The woman in our text is the great prostitute. She rides the beast. She controls world political power. She attacks the martyrs. She offers to the people of the world happiness. She offers them security, which is no security. We know that, but the world doesn't seem to recognize it. The world says we're secure if we have money, if we have sexual pleasure. If we can have, have all the, the, the movies and the television shows and the pleasures of this world, then we are secure. But the woman, the other woman in the desert says, no, that's not security. And from that woman, a child was born. The child of the dragon tried to destroy. A child is our Lord Jesus Christ. Born out of the Old Testament church, the woman who becomes the redeemer of the church of the Old Testament and the New Testament and offers us the security of his blood and his spirit, that we may be justified in his blood, born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, and know that we are children of God. And that's not to say we can't enjoy the good things of this world in a right way. But ultimately, we do not define our lives by our money, or by, even by our marriage, or our job, but life is defined. Life is qualified. Life is where it is in the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ. And then here we say, it is well. It is well with my soul because I'm a child of God. 
That brings us to our second point. We'll look a little more closely now at the unholy alliance between the prostitute and the beast. John is pretty upset with what he has seen, and the angel says, hold on, I'm going to explain it to you. The great prostitute is riding the beast. The prostitute controls the beast and is using him for her own goals. So now what our text does is it introduces us to the beast, who he is, what he is, and how the prostitute can use him. Now we get the inside scoop on the beast in verse 8. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. Brothers and sisters, what we have here is a joke. What we have here is the angel, we have the Holy Spirit, poking fun at the beast. The beast, he loves to compare himself to Jesus Christ. The beast, one of his heads had a wound which was healed. And he's trying to pass himself off just like Jesus Christ, who is the lamb who had a wound, wound but he's now doing well in heaven. The beast says, I'm equal to Jesus. I got a wound too. I'm healed and I rule. In fact, the trinity of the dragon, the first beast, and the second beast, the false prophet, is supposed to be a parody of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The devil and his, his minions are always trying to pass themselves off as being equal to God. And our text is poking fun at that. It's back in chapter 1, you know this line from chapter 1, God the Father and the Son are described as who is, who was, and who is to come. Meaning God is the God of the past, the present, and the future. He has the whole world in his hands. And he assures us of his everlasting love and of a salvation that will one day bring us into the new heavens and the new earth. Now, here's the joke. The beast wants to be just like that. I, I, I was, I am, and I forever will be. But our text says, who was, now is not, and will rise up only for a little while to go to his destruction. So this beast... He has always existed from the beginning of the world, but he is barely existing now because Jesus Christ conquered him by his death and resurrection. At the end, he will rise only for a little while, but he himself will be brought down and thrown into the lake of fire. So the world admires the beast. The world stands in awe of, of political power, of governments which, which give you earthly security. But what the world does not realize, all these peoples whose name have not been written in the book of life, what they don't realize is that the beast himself is going down into the lake of fire because Jesus Christ has already conquered him. Now we need to consider wisely the fact that the beast has seven heads and ten horns. We have to consider this wisely so that we, we're not rattled. We don't lower our guard and we say, well... You know, our text can say the beast is not powerful, but when I look at our world and I look at governments and I look at culture, you know, I'm, af I'm afraid. I'm not sure that Jesus Christ has me safely and firmly in his hands. So let's look a little more closely at this beast. Use wisdom. Apply your mind to understand this. The fact that he has seven heads, you know that the number seven means completeness and fullness. Those heads are described as hills or mountains and as kings. 
And the Old Testament hills are mountains, often described as, as God's witnesses and symbols of power. So the image we have of the seven heads, which are seven mountains, seven kings, are of earthly kingdoms with their kings. Now, we don't take that as seven literal kings, because this is a symbolic number, meaning fullness or completeness. These seven kings represent earthly kingdoms throughout history. You know, that could have been Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, and today it can even represent American power or China or whatever. These are the kingdoms. These are the kings of the earth. Our text says about the seven kings, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, but when he comes, he must remain for a little while. It sounds complicated, but that's just an easy way of describing history. Five kings have fallen. That's, that's past history. Long gone are the Egyptian, Babylonian, Persian, and Greek empires. They're all dead. They're all gone. Now one exists, and it happens to be the Roman Empire. There is a future, but it's very small. One more king will arise, but he won't last for very long. And then he will go down because our Lord Jesus Christ is returning on the clouds of heaven to judge this world and establish a new heavens and a new earth. And now we read a remarkable line. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. Now, admittedly, this is a very difficult thing to, to, to understand and to describe. But what it's saying is the beast has seven heads. So the beast represents all world political powers. The beast himself is an eighth head, and yet he is not separate from world powers. He's part of it. He works in connection with it. So basically what, what's being said here is the beast is the anti-Christian power of Satan working through political powers at any time in history, working to attack the church of Jesus Christ, attack the kingdom-building work of people who live to the praise and the glory of God. But the beast and all the kingdoms of the earth, their time is limited. Christ is coming, and he will throw them all into the lake of fire if they do not repent and believe in him. Then there are the ten horns, which are described in verse 12. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. Hard for us to understand what that means, but in John's day this was readily recognizable because they had a phenomenon known as client kings or satellite kings. You had the Roman Empire, you had the emperor... It was the king of the whole world. But what he did is throughout the provinces, he would appoint men as kings, as a satellite king, to do his work in that part of the world. You think of Herod. Herod wasn't a king. He had no royal dynasty. He wasn't from a royal background. But Herod was appointed as a satellite king by the Roman emperor to do his work in Israel and to control that part of the world for the glory and for the betterment of the empire. Brothers and sisters, that, that pattern is carried out time and again through history. 
You think of the former USSR. You think of men like Lenin and Stalin who ruled a large part of this world with an iron fist. But they had sub-states and they had rulers in different parts of their empire. Appointed them as a satellite king, as a ruler, to do their work and to do their, their thing for the glory and the upbuilding of the USSR. So what we have, brothers and sisters, is that throughout history, you have these amazing empires like the Babylonian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, powerful empires with all their governors around them doing their work, and riding on them is the prostitute. You have the false church, you have the economy, you have business, you have culture, in bed with political powers so that all together they stand opposed to the church of Jesus Christ and the advancement of his kingdom. They're making awfully sure in politics, in business, in culture, in the media, in secular education to prevent people from living to the praise and the glory of God. However, we read, they will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. And we're not surprised. Everything in our text has been leading up to this. The beast, he was, now is not, and will rise only for a little while to go down to destruction. The satellite kings, these, these, these puppet powers, will rule only for an hour. But Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Already by the death, his death on the cross of Golgotha and by his resurrection. He has crushed the power of Satan, sin, and death, and he has gone up into heaven to receive the scroll and open its seven seals. Jesus Christ runs world history. You understand that not a leaf unfurls, not a degree in temperature changes, not a snowflake falls, No wind blows that snow across the road except Jesus Christ makes it happen, controls it for his own purposes in the advancement of his kingdom. You know, Satan and the political powers of this world and the economy and culture, it can stand poised against Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, if I lift my finger, you are all going down. And you will if you do not wake up and repent and believe in me. The remarkable thing is that along with him will stand his called, chosen, and faithful fathers, uh, followers. The beast may think that he's pretty powerful in our world. In Kenya right now, where there is rioting going on, the devil and his followers probably think that every Christian in Kenya is terrified that they're going to be gathered together in some church and burned up by a mob. He probably thinks that every Christian here in Canada is worried that he or she might lose their job because they refuse to work on Sunday or to compromise their ethics. The devil might think that surely with all the attractions of money and alcohol and drugs and sexual immorality, surely Christians are one day going to to just throw in the towel and follow him. But every Christian who sees Jesus Christ and sees him in faith and love and with pride, and will stand up, take up his cross, and follow Jesus. 
will be able to put Satan down and overcome him. Satan has power over us only when we're afraid of him, only when we think that he has something to offer us. But you stand up to Satan, look him in the eye, and say, you go ahead and give me your best shot, but I am not following you. The devil is afraid of you. The world is afraid of you. You might suffer for a while, but you are on a journey that will bring you to everlasting glory. Satan is going down to hell. Everyone who follows him is going to hell. But you are going to glory. You are going to a new and a better world. You are more than conquerors in our Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us to our final point. In a most unexpected conclusion, we thought the prostitute and the beast were in bed together. We thought they were in cahoots together. We thought the prostitute worked with the beast, worked with political power in order to to, to create a world that stands opposed against God. But now suddenly the beast turns against the prostitute and destroys her and eats her flesh. We read, the beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. In some ways we're not surprised. That's the life of a prostitute. We know that here in the Edmonton area because of the the horrible things that have happened to prostitutes in the Edmonton area, how they are oppressed, how they are beaten, how they are torn apart, and how they are murdered and left along the side of the road. Prostitutes have something to offer. They attract and seduce many men, but the men turn often to hate them and to destroy them. That, that's a symbol of a much larger horrifying reality in our world, that world political power can at a certain point absolutely despise and hate the false church and the true church for that matter and culture and economy as a whole. You might say, but that's a pretty stupid thing to do. I mean, what's, what's the devil thinking? He's got all these tools To work against God, why does he let the beast attack the prostitute? You know, the devil isn't anybody's friend. The devil hates God. The devil hates the world. He hates every person in it because man has been created as the image of God. So even if you love the devil, even if you follow the devil, he still hates you and will do everything in his power to make your life an absolute mess and he will be happiest when he has you for eternity in the fires of hell. So when he sees people equally involved in ruin, when he sees unbelievers turning on each other, devouring each other, ruining each other's lives, he's got a smile on his face. He says, is God's world ever a big mess? I made such a mess of God's world. I couldn't be happier than to see God frustrated with what's happening to his creation. And that's why... Even political power can turn and feed on false religion, on the economy, on culture, and destroy it. It's quite something. If you think of the church, the church is instrumental in creating culture and art and a good work ethic and building up a society where people will will have have love and, and compassion and help for one another. For a government to destroy the church and to destroy economy and culture 
seems to be self-defeating. Maybe that's why we read in the next chapter, verse 9, that when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Well, too little, too late. You destroyed her, you see her burning, and now you see what you lost when you destroyed the church and and culture and, and, and economy. Well, you reap what you sow, and you suffer. You lost the very things that once gave you pleasure. Obviously, something else is going on here. And what is striking that we read near the end of our text, for God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. So the fact that the beast turns in hatred against the great prostitute is also the doing of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords. He causes the enemy to turn against each other and to attack each other and destroy each other. Not a smart move on Satan's part. Satan hasn't always done the smartest thing. When he saw to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, he was just filled with joy. He had killed the son of David, son of God, by the cross, never realizing he played into the hands of God himself. Jesus needed to die because then he could cripple the power of Satan and redeem a people who he could lead out of this broken world to live eternally to the praise and the glory of God. And now in our present world, Satan's purposes often aren't that straight and clear to himself because he is a pawn in the hands of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all his moves begin to work against each other and to feed on each other. And do we not see that today, brothers and sisters? We live in a world where there is so little trust between different groups and segments of society. Now politics is so much on our mind, whether it's the premier of our our province, Ed Stelmack, or the the prime minister of our, our country, Stephen Harper, or the primaries going on in America. People are making clear that we are not interested in partisan politics, but we want a man or a woman who will step forward with a vision, someone who is real, someone who can do something for our country. Politics is being laid bare today. People are frustrated and they're critical and they're not going to take the status quo. They got their own vision. But also economics, brothers and sisters, and society as a whole. So much frustration, so much bitterness with the economy of the states and Canada and global economy, how it's being messed up, people losing their homes, America going into recession. What about culture? Are people getting sick and tired of culture? I mean, what is our culture? You open the journal on any day and you go to the culture section. What do you read? You read about the latest escapade of Britney Spears or Lindsay Lohan. Is that our culture? I'm sick and tired of it. Let's get on to real things, things that are important, things that, that make a difference in our world. Our world is stressed. Politics, economy, culture is clashing. And our Lord Jesus Christ is behind it all, making absolutely clear that the things of this world which are in bed with each other has no security, no hope. It's all going down. 
Last line of our text says, The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. She rules for a while. She's going down. She's going to be eaten up and destroyed by her own world. Therefore, brothers and sisters, by the end of our text, and we're not even done with the book of Revelation. It it keeps on going, speaking about the two beasts and the devil himself. But what becomes clear is that we are, are walking through a world which is no more than a constant death. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And there's dirt all around us. There's dangers that threaten us every... On the one hand, we got a prostitute who is seducing us with false religion, with the love of money and the culture. On the other hand, we have politics, we have an economy which is threatening us, trying to undo our trust in Jesus Christ alone as Lord and Savior. But if we see Jesus, if we see him as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the one who has conquered Satan, broken the power of death, and washed away all our sins, and if we look to him and we trust in him and live our lives to his praise and his glory, we understand that we are on a journey we are Christian soldiers who move onward, fighting the good fight of faith against the temptations of this world. But we are moving on to the dawn of a new and a better day. When our Lord Jesus Christ will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will remove the prostitute and the beast and the devil from our lives. Bring us into a new heavens and a new earth where we may dwell in peace to the praise and the glory of God in everything in our work, in our culture, in our relationships with one another, all to the praise and the glory of God. Amen.